Top Assistant, Episode 5. I'm Kevin Wilson alongside the great coach, Eric Skeeters. And, um, Coach, you, uh, every week you got some sort of outfit going on here. And, I mean, I didn't think I'd yeah. see a highlighter uh, this uh, during this recording. But, uh, <laughs> you got the hat, the shirt going. Uh, what, uh, right. what, what do we have going on here? So, in honor of our guest, where we formerly met, um, I literally was a fan of his since his first book that I know of, Season on the Brink, uh, Inside Indiana Basketball. Where are you currently located in Bloomington, Indiana? Okay. Um, but this is obviously, what is that, March 16th, 2018. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the Orioles started, there we go, the Orioles started this line of hats with our they, they honored us, uh, Ryan Odom, throughout the first pitch. And we were playing the Cleveland Indians at the time, the Guardians now. But guess who was the manager of the Cleveland Indians? Crazy. Was Let me get to it. Nah. And he grabs the guys and telling them, uh, well, let's introduce the guests first. So the the, the most – Busting through the seams with excitement is Eric Skeeter. So. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Literally, uh, like I'm, I'm – I'm, Chopping at the bit. Let's get him in here. So very special guest joining us, the John Feinstein. You know him for some familiar and fantastic works of art. Um, Season on the Brink, a new book uh, that just dropped a couple of, a, a month or so ago, Faraday, that we'll get into as well, uh, where nobody knows your name, but the tons. We can go all day just dropping um, and lauding the praise here. But the, uh, the legendary uh, sports writer and journalist, John Feinstein. How are you this morning? Good, sir. Kevin, Eric, I'm well. It's good to be with you, and I appreciate uh, you having me. So, absolutely. As we were coming on, we were having some technical difficulty, and I got to get this Pat Kennedy out <laughs> because, John, I worked for him for five years. I left the ACC to come work for him because he taught me the business of college basketball. People didn't know that he was the the incoming president at NABC that year, like. They were looking at me like I had three heads of why would you leave Seth Greenberg and Virginia Tech going into the ACC to go work for Pat Kennedy at Towson. Uh, everything I've, I didn't know, he taught me about everything that besides recruiting and X's and O's on the court. But he was an old school head coach, had been a head coach from 1980. He replaced Tim Valvano. Yep. And so at Iona. And so from 1980 to 2004, when I came to join him, he had a secretary as a head coach. So think about that transformation in technology, right? This guy's at Iona, Florida State, DePaul, Montana, and he comes to Towson. And, he, had, you know, he's just getting a cell phone. And so literally, shout out to my man Keith Goody, who was a coach of the Baltimore uh, AAU team called Baltimore Select. And he literally asked me for this guy's number five times a season. Hey, 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 skeet, 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 skeet. And if Robbie Kennedy ever sees us, his nephew that runs it, hey, hey, boss, 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 boss. He always say something like four, five, six times. You got Keith, uh, Keith Goody's number? I said, yeah, Coach, yeah, give me your phone. I'll put it in your phone for you. So all you got to do is dial, push the K and the E, and it'll start to pop up. Okay, yeah, good, 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 good. I did that five times a season. I know. He still hasn't season. learned it, has he? <laughs> so so the, the funny thing for me is, so I moved on to South Florida. He moved on. I, I think Pat's um, he's working with this technology, this 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 company that that does recruiting um, websites and, and evaluations for student athletes. Uh, 
or Be the Beast, I think it's called. I hope I'm getting that right, Pat. Heard of it. But he text messaged. I'm sitting in my office one day, and I'm at my phone, and, and a text message came from Pat Kennedy, and I almost fell out my chair. I said, holy shit, he knows how to text message. There is, there is hope for the old school. Like, he had a leather-bound telephone book. In 2005, 2006, I know we were coaching Gary Neal and, you know, we're, 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 we're rocking and rolling the Towson. And he's getting pages from like one of those Hallmark stores to put in the, you know, it's got the, the binder and he's still adding pages and putting people's names. He was old school, John, to the umpteenth degree. Well, Eric, I still don't know how to put phone numbers in my phone Come to on. this day. My children do it for me. Love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And being your, being, you know, like past been a head coach. So he's been a head coach since 1980. Secretary, like he would sit in his desk and literally call out to the secretary, Carolyn, where's the staff? Staff, staff, can we meet? He would just yell out. Well, I'll quickly tell you this in terms of old school coaches. I, I was working at, at the, in the office at the Washington Post one Sunday many years ago, and it was ACC Media Day in Greensboro. Okay. Okay. And I needed to get in touch with Dean Smith for a story I was working on. Mm-hmm. So I asked a good friend of mine, Keith Drum, who at the time worked for the Durham Morning Herald, if he would just pass the Post's 800 number to Dean uh-huh. and ask Dean to call me on that number. Uh-huh. Just call the 800 number and ask for me. So Keith did it, and Dean looked at him, and you know, most coaches will say, well, what does he want to talk to me about? Uh-huh. Dean said, I don't know how to dial an 800 number. <laughs> <laughs> he never dialed the phone. His secretary always dialed the phone. <laughs> Oh, Once again, great to have the, the great John uh, Wa- uh, Feinstein here. I'm sorry. Um been called worse. You're in the show, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> you mentioned the Washington Post. Um, uh, let's. Why don't we just start there? I mean, uh, the New York Times, interesting news over this past week where um, – Heartbreaking news. Getting rid of their sports journalism, essentially, with the uh, acquisition of The Athletic. Um, such historic – um, things um, done over the decades and now just kind of being thrown to the wayside as we see AI, the rise of AI and the acquisition of the athletic. What are your thoughts on where we are in sports journalism today? Well, I'm so old, Kevin, that I still get the New York Times and Washington Post at home every morning. Amen. I read them while I'm having my coffee. Um, and many of the writers I grew up reading and then later looking up to when I got to meet them, guys like Dave Anderson and Pete Alfano and uh, 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 Neil Amder and Harvey Ayrton and on down the list uh, all worked for the New York times. And there were, there, there was a time when I aspired to work for the New York times because I grew up in New York and I read the times and the post New York post every day Um, times in the morning post I'd pick up on the way home from school. Uh, And while when the athletics started, I was all for it, you know, employ uh, good sports writers committing good sports journalism. And they've done a good deal of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, but just recently they laid off 20 guys, uh, mm-hmm. many of whom are good friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the times bought them a couple of years ago uh, and started sort of incorporating them into sports 
Uh, and that was an awkward situation. And then they just turned around. And then what's a corporate move? It has nothing to do with journalism. That's for sure. Hmm. Um, they eliminated the sports department, 50 guys, roughly, um, who will either be moved to other jobs or within the paper, or maybe they'll be moved to the athletic or maybe they'll lose their jobs. Although the times claims there'll be no layoffs. This is devastating for, for journalism in general, not just sports journalism. Amen. We okay. all know newspapers are struggling to survive. I happen to be lucky enough to work at one of the few papers that's still making money, although a lot of that is through the internet, but I don't care where the money comes from as that's long right. as they still pay me. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, this is another death knell for sports mm. journalism. It's the New York Times. It's not, in the New York Times. Yeah. The New York Times. Yeah. No, they don't. That's why their, their slogan for years is all the news that's fit to print well, now, if, you, if you get the print newspaper, you're not getting any sports unless you pay extra to get online uh, to to get um, the athletic. It's terrible. No, that's it. I was an avid newspaper reader and still am to this day. I get the post online. Um, in my younger did as a as a kid, my parents, my dad owned the Seven Eleven, so. Washington Post, Baltimore Sun. The, the Sun had a morning sun and an evening sun. Yep. And then in 19, we opened the store in 81. So 1983, you know what hit USA Today. Yep. And so the first USA Today player of the year, high school basketball, was Reggie Williams. Right there, they, they gave him the, the, the award right there at Baltimore Civic Center at the championship. I was a freshman at Cardinal Gibbons High School. So I read the newspaper, and that was in the 80s as an athlete. Your name was in the paper, like the box scores and things of that nature. They did a feature article or things of that nature. You made the paper as far as the box score. That's how we followed sports. Right. I went to college and we would go to the library to read other newspapers in other cities yep. about what's going on with our friends that are playing in other cities and other right. states around right. the country. So that's it, it's a technology, you know, the great thing. It's it's like analytics in basketball. And so at UNBC, John, Griff came in. Griff Aldridge now head coach at Longwood. Griff was analytics, analytics, analytics. Yeah, because he was a lawyer. Yeah, exactly. And to a degree, I was still open to learn it, and obviously he knew it. But at the same time, it was like, Griff, we got to have a feel. And Griff played, so there's no no knock on Griff. Right. He played but he was coming into the coaching world of college basketball full-fledged. And I was you know, just explaining to him, Yes, the numbers, yes, but they don't tell you time and score. They don't tell you situations. They don't tell you if a guy's hurt or healthy. So let's put that into, and we played, we went to play James Madison, and there were some deals with some injuries, and I it was like one or two kids, and this is kind of, you know, pat myself on the back, but Griffin, Griffin and I had great, and that's why I still love him. Kevin, yeah, that's the first, Eric patting himself on the back. Yeah. <laughs> Who so, you telling? So that's a part of the show, John. Shameless plug all over the place, and right. that's hey. Guess what? Until somebody it's you know cuts a check and 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 sponsors the show, we <laughs> the best job I can to get this get the information out there. <laughs> but playing James Madison and somebody who was not playing for those first five or six games was non-conference game. Did you? I don't know. You guys didn't travel with us to the non-conference no. game first year, and. Literally, a guy that never had barely played the season, but it was a start of the year before because people were hurt. 
And actually, it was a kid from Baltimore that was hurt. And I grabbed him before the game and said, hey, man, you know, had the little small talk with him, played at St. Francis. So, you know, we had a conversation. Like, no, he's a – so he didn't play. And sure enough, this one guy that I'm glad I put in the scout report, he started. We ended up winning the game. So it was a great kind of a – okay, Griff, here's the example of where, you know, analytics really didn't come into play. We got to literally know the guys. We got to know the players. We got to put in some of the intangibles in in regards to – when you're breaking that down, obviously he's done a hell of a job t- taking Longwood to the NCAA tournament. He's done a great job. He's a great head. He was a great leader coming in. And, yeah. And well, Griff is a great guy, he, and he's done, as you said, a terrific job at Longwood, and he and I are still very close. Um, mm-hmm. But I've, I've never been an analytics guy in any sport. I, I, and, you know, if, if you want to show me a stat, I'm certainly willing to look at it, and maybe it, it tells me something I didn't know. But – as I used to say on the UMBC telecasts all the time, um, I, 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 speaking of being old school, the way I judge a player is I watch him play. There you go. <laughs> and, and years ago, there years ago, I was at a dinner right after Michael Jordan left North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he'd been taken, as you guys know, number three in the NBA draft behind Hakeem Olajuwon, who's a Hall of Famer, right. and behind Sam Bowie. Sam hey, Bowie, that's right. And I was sitting – at this dinner next to Pat Riley, who of course was king of the world then with the Lakers as he's okay. king of the world now. Uh-huh. The and I made the comment, I'd had a few drinks, uh-huh. that uh, the Portland Trailblazers would go down not only as the team that drafted LaRue Martin with the number one pick, but as the team that took Sam Bowie ahead of Michael Jordan. Hmm. And Riley looks at me and he goes, see, this is why you media people just don't understand the game. <laughs> and he said, because Dean Smith always listed Michael Jordan at six six when he's really only six foot four and a half. Oh boy. And I looked at him, I said, Pat, I watched a kid play for three years in college. Yeah. Uh if he was five four and a half, I'm telling you he's gonna be one of the all time great players. <laughs> okay. And Riley looked at me and he goes, You know something? You're young and you're loud. Well, now I'm just loud. But I was still right. That's right. <laughs> I watched him play. Right, right. Well, let alone the Kentucky bias. You know, like Sam Boy was a Kentucky guy. A right. People don't True. know Pat Riley is Kentucky history. Plus, Pat Riley is the single most arrogant human being I've met in sports, which is saying a hell of a lot. <laughs> okay. Never <laughs> met him. Never met the guy. Never had the pleasure. I've displeasure. had the displeasure. <laughs> I would, would love to have a conversation with him about that. Because you know what? Jordan gave the jab. At the Hall of Fame induction, you remember that? Yep. About what room they were in, hotel in Hawaii or whatever, and he slipped a note under the door or something about get well, out. The thing about room. Michael is he never forgot a slight. No, mm-hmm. no. That, that listen, that drives a lot of us. Trust me. But well, we we, we started this convo off the uh, the sports journalism piece. Yeah. You know, staying on that same on that same mode, we saw some phenomenal journalism coming out of the student newspaper, uh, the, the daily Northwestern, um, in the Pat Fitzgerald situation where it seemed like the paper single-handedly forced the president to make a play here. Um, what are your thoughts on students making uh, such a move at such a high-profile university and a high-profile job for somebody with Pat Fitzgerald, who was kind of a king up there in Illinois? Yeah. Pat Fitzgerald was still is Northwestern football dating back to his days as a great linebacker on their 1996 Rose Bowl team, mm-hmm. all-time winning as coach at the school. But I love when student papers um, commit journalism. And I have said for years, one of the reasons I still write for the Washington Post 
is because I believe in journalism. I believe in daily journalism. I believe in great content, whether it's online or in print, in a magazine, in a newspaper. And, you know, so many kids nowadays, when I was in college, all I wanted to do was someday work for the Washington Post Hmm. because my parents had moved to Washington while I was in college. I started reading it daily. Watergate happened while Hmm. I was in high school. Um, Woodward and Bernstein happened. I read all the president's men. Um, My goal was to someday work at the Washington Post. I was very lucky because I got a summer internship there at a college and ended up getting hired. I never thought that would happen. But nowadays, a lot of kids, a majority of kids who are in high school, uh, excuse me, in college, um, they want to work for ESPN. ESPN's become the gold standard. I, I talk to kids all the time. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, what do you want to do? I want to work for ESPN. A lot of them see the Washington Post or the New York Times or the L.A. Times or any of the great papers as stepping stones to television in general, to ESPN in specific. I don't think I don't think, you know, 60 Minutes obviously uh, has done great TV journalism for 50 plus years. And there are occasional sports stories but you know people talk about 30 for 30 i think most of the 30 for 30 suck to be honest (laughs) because they all end up being puff pieces on the subject i mean look i covered len bias at merrill i knew him well i liked him a lot Mm. but the notion on the the first 30 for 30 they did was on len bias and and the theme of the whole thing was that night was the first time he ever used cocaine oh come on Mm. let's not be stupid Mm-hmm. about this and again i i was a big len bias fan i thought he was going to be a hall of famer yeah um and that's and that's what most of the 30 for 30s are and I'm, I'm saying that not to put down espn although i'm happy to put down espn um, but to make the point that the best journalism 90 95 percent of the time is still committed in print and so when i see the kids at the daily northwestern not buy Pat Fitzgerald's story that he was Sergeant Schultz and knew nothing and go out and report the hell out of the story to the point where you're right, Kevin, the president was, the president clearly didn't want to fire him. Uh, Initially gave him a two week suspension in July. Mm -hmm. There's no practice or games going on. (laughs) Anyway, that's right. I wish somebody would suspend me for two weeks and pay me. During vacay time. Yeah. While I'm going on vacation. And, and, uh, and, and the kids at Northwestern at the, at the, the newspaper broke the story. And uh, good for them. And I hope they keep after it because the story is clearly not over. And I hope that others, whether they be student, student newspapers or not, look at what they did and said, aha, you know, you can still do good, commit good reporting. Well, John, the, the, the one thing, in, in the kids today, in my, I, got a, I got two college students in my house under my roof. I say this all the time in adjusting to coaching, just like parenting. I tell I, I tell the coaches in staff meetings and conversations, it's not their fault that they're glued to their screens and things of that nature because since my kids were in the car seat in the back seat of the wherever we were going somewhere, I've had a device in their hand and we had this conversation right. because it started out with leapfrog. And the, they learned the numbers and colors and foreign languages. Like my youngest son is fluent in Spanish. And it went from leapfrog to watching a movie. And, you know, you put the screens, the monitors, to keep them quiet in the car when we're traveling. Like, I, you know, we're going places or we're going to the store. 
And then they told me, I forgot about the next device was a PSP. And so this PSP was a device that they could play video games on. They could watch movies on. You put the little cartridges in. It had Wi-Fi. And then it went from there to a little iPad to a cell phone. And so I'm sure parents today with their with their kids, like that's, and I remember being at Virginia Tech, this was 04, 03. Like I'm driving across camp and the kids are literally walking across the street. Yep. And, uh, you know, and now it's on campus. You, you, most, a lot of these college campuses where the, the students, you know, you the pedestrians have the right of way regardless. But I'm like, she has no idea that I'm driving down the street and could just, and it's not at the crosswalk. She's in the middle of just right. walking across the sidewalk, right. going to class, the class. So getting back to Northwestern, everyone has the opportunity to have their own radio and TV network called social media. So it's the gift and the curse. Lawrence Tunzel, who was the Mississippi offensive lineman, was supposed to come to the Ravens, I want to say in the top 10, that year as an offensive lineman, all of a sudden the day of the draft, this video comes out of him smoking marijuana through a, a, a gas mask. And so now he drops. I don't know where he dropped from top 10 to wherever. So it cost him millions of dollars in his initial draft and a signing bonus and things of that nature. But what same thing make you laugh, make you cry with social media and understanding it. Those kids, I've had been on staffs where the kids go to the local newspaper, the, the student newspaper. Jeff Ball at Youngstown State tried to get us fired. I mean, literally, he was on the cover of the student newspaper with his Youngstown State jacket on with this picture, his big Y. And he tried to get us fired because he didn't want to do extra running or something. We, You know, it was the day we were doing 2020s for conditioning. He just freaking quit. Then he, next thing you know, he it, 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 it was bananas. But Yes, they have a voice, and they're supposed, but they're called as a coach. So I, I might be a little biased to Coach Fitzgerald's situation. They're called college kids for a reason, and that's where that transformation into adulthood and the the invention of social media and they having these devices can come back to haunt them and hurt them. When college, you go to learn and adjust and become a person, go from childhood to adulthood. And a lot of them want to avoid that. They want to avoid that maturation process. They just want to go straight from childhood to adulthood. Well, what what are you saying? Are you saying that Pat Fitzgerald should be protected more in this situation? Or no, what, what no, 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 no. I'm saying I'm not because I haven't really read into what happened. And so, okay, and, and forgive my ignorance um, in regards to the topic, but. There's a ton of scenarios where the kids get it wrong, and I've I've, I've well, dealt- they, they didn't get it wrong here. Not this time. Yeah, they didn't sure. get it wrong here. No, and and you know it, 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 it's sort of an easy cop out when because uh, I broke stories as a student news, uh, student reporter when I when I was at Duke, and uh, it, I, I still remember Carl James, the athletic director, <laughs> calling me one time and saying. John, you and I can still be friends, but I'm never going to speak to you again. And I said, that might put a dent in our friendship. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that uh, you're right that student journalists are trying to learn on the job and, and good for these guys. See, because, Eric, the easiest thing in the world to do is to be a cheerleader. 
as as a so-called journalist. You know, mm-hmm. I, I see it here in Washington all the time. I mean, for years, Dan Snyder was protected by the yeah. media until he yeah. went so far over the line that people finally had to start criticizing him. My yeah. good friend Tony Kornheiser uh, was was a, a big Dan Snyder defender mm-hmm. for years. And Tony's as smart as anybody I've ever met in the business. The easiest mm-hmm. thing is to say, oh, we love Pat Fitzgerald and, um, you know, he didn't know anything. You you know very well, Eric, because you've been both an assistant coach and, and a head coach. In the end, the head coach takes the bows for the wins, and he's got to take the responsibility for the losses. No doubt. No and doubt. this is one of those situations where Pat Fitzgerald's been a great coach mm-hmm. at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. But you can't simply say, well, because he's won a lot of games, this is okay. And no. by the way, I'll add one other thing. Anybody who thinks the hazing – that was uh, documented, and I mm. use that word on purpose, mm. uh, at Northwestern. Only happens at Northwestern. Right. I've got some oceanfront property in Oklahoma I want to sell you. No, no doubt. I mean, That's why the story is ongoing. Yeah, a few good men did you order the code red. Like, exactly. It, it, you know, it, it, you're you goddamn right. right. <laughs> from, uh, from, from, from Pat Fitzgerald, um want to kind of transition also – Get your thoughts on this Bob Huggins uh, situation as well, and uh, it hasn't been a great summer for for um, for Hugs. There uh, had the situation with the 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 uh, that wasn't a slip up. That was a deliberate comment on the radio station, and then um, the uh, unfortunate DUI recently. But now um, had a meeting with his team. Said, you know, I'm uh, allegedly said I'm. Uh, no longer going to coach this team, something to that effect. The university was happy with that. Bob Huggins says no. That did not happen. I did not uh, agree to just walk away here, and I want my job back. We're talking about one of the uh, most uh, iconic coaches of all time on the court. Uh, Thoughts on Bob Huggins, John? Well, Kevin, I've known Bob Huggins since 1989. Uh, I first saw his, his first Cincinnati team play in Hawaii, and Cincinnati had won, I believe, seven games the year before. And they were, they were good. They really guarded. Uh, they were impressive. And I became friends with Bob Huggins that week in Hawaii. I spent a good deal of time with him. That's one of the great things about the preseason tournaments. The coaches are a little more relaxed. That's right. They're in Hawaii. Um, <laughs> and, you know, three years later, they make the Final Four. So, for once, I got something right. And I've known Bob. I, I, I wrote a column about Bob when he uh, resigned or didn't resign. Um, and I started it with a, a story just so people would know I was biased. Hmm. In which several years ago, I was interviewing Bob and I had said to him, why aren't you in the Hall of Fame yet? And he said, probably because you've been my biggest supporter, <laughs> uh, which I had been. And I was delighted when Bob got into the Hall of Fame. I've always liked him, liked his dry sense of humor. Everybody knew Bob drank. I mean, he had a DUI in 2004, I think it was. Um, He survived a heart attack uh, the year before that. Pittsburgh Airport, yeah. Yeah, in the Pittsburgh Airport, right. And and so when I heard this story about the DUI and the fact that he blew 0.21, 0.21 is a lot. When I say this, as the son of an alcoholic, my mother was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So I understand about being too much. I understand about she never dr- dr- drank and drove, but she drank a lot for several years. And 
my thought was, okay, Bob's almost 70. He's going to be 70 in September. Um, this is a bad incident. Why was he driving without an assistant coach? You know, yeah. uh, when Mike Krzyzewski was still coaching, his assistants used to joke that when they wrote their memoirs, it was going to be called Driving Coach K. Not because he drank, because he didn't, but because he, he didn't like to drive. So, so one of the assistants always had to drive him. So why didn't Bob have somebody driving him back from the camp to Morgantown? I don't get that. But my thought was, okay, he's had a great career. He's in the Hall of Fame. He made a bad mistake. First on the Cincinnati radio station, as you mentioned, Kevin. Um, and then with, with the, the DUI. Now Bob says the charges are going to be dropped. I don't know how that's possible at 0.21, 0.08 maybe. Mm-hmm. Not a point to one. Yeah. Um, and I, this is becoming a sad story. It was a sad story to begin with. Yeah. When he was clearly forced to quote resign. Um, and it's only going to get sadder. I'm afraid. How do you see this? Uh, how do you see this ending here? John? Well, I don't think he's not going to coach again. I, I, I think what's going to happen is that they're going to negotiate some kind of buyout. The lawyers will get together and, uh, the Bob's lawyers will say he wants his job back. They'll say, okay, here's a million bucks. I'm making up the number, right. mm-hmm. drop it and, and let, let us move on and let Bob move on and let Bob, I hope get some help. My mother eventually went to rehab, it changed her life. Um, my friend, David Faraday, we mentioned uh, the book I wrote on him. David went to rehab too and, 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 and flunked out after 12 days. It wasn't right for him. Rehab's not right for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I hope Bob gets some help because I think he needs it. Well, and the and the disappointment is because I've known Hugs for a long time since the Cincinnati days, um, and his his longtime assistant and good friend that I thought Billy inspired Larry Harrison. Oh, Larry Harrison okay. during this season. Yep, that it, it, it's a little bit of karma because the dynamics of a of a successful coaching staff and that that long term success. Let's just say Larry did a lot for Bob. And helped, like you say, why didn't any of the assistant coaches? Because all that time Larry was there, I'm sure Hugs did a lot of drinking. Yeah. Just like Cincinnati. Like I've been at golf outings with Hugs where they had pictures of what I thought was water. It was vodka. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah. he literally was playing golf with pitchers. He had, but, he, but he had drivers, right? Yeah. And so I say that to say getting rid of Larry. And I, sp- I personally talked to Larry, friend. Like he's one of my mentors. I'd left working in the ACC to come work for Pat Kennedy because of what Larry said. His transition wasn't to becoming a head coach and the respectability of working for someone like Pat Kennedy and a former ACC coach of the year that the dynamics of that staff. And I don't know those guys, but I know DeMar Johnson that just joined there this year. He replaced Larry, but um, what took place on that staff and what's going on in West Virginia basketball under hugs. That was a disappointment. And that was a little bit of a, I think I'm just going to use karma because a lot of things are out of your control. You, 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 you have as a staff, all these different egos and personalities and skill sets that they bring to the table. Hugs and Larry, I know were really tight because they were together for over 20 years as a, you know, as coach and assistant coach for a long time and very successful I mean, Final Four, Big East Championship at West and Final Four at West Virginia. Like, Hugs has been to two Final Fours at yes. two different schools. And so, great coach, Hall of Fame coach. 
but whatever took place in that last year and the fact that a lot of guys in this new generation of coaches, I don't know if it's the young guys on the staff or whatever that wanted the success or wanted the credit, the credit for the wins and things of that nature that comes into play. But for, for Larry to get fired in the middle of the season, like, there's yeah, a lot well, going on in West Virginia, and it's a time. I don't know. Say, everything you say is true, Eric, and and the, what it leads to is we don't know what happened. No, we don't exactly. know what was going on. No, we we don't. don't know what the situation was with Bob. Right. Uh, you know, his good friend Billy Hahn died yeah. uh, about Rest two months peace. before this incident. Yeah. Um. So we just don't know. All we know is it's sad. Without a doubt, and let's leave it there. You, you're, you're a thousand percent right, and and the difference it, that happens at a lot of levels. It's not just at you know West Virginia, the power no question in coaching, not just in basketball, football. You know, it, it happens. In life, Amen. <laughs> life. <laughs> One of Eric Skeeter's favorite books: "Raise a Fist, Take a Knee: Race and the Illusion of Progress in Modern Sports." And he really wanted to dig in a little bit um, about yes. this book and. Um, Skeet, I'll, I'll I'll let you uh kind of kind of take it away here, but you you were really passionate about this uh, this book, and I, I I can speak um, on your behalf. I mean, your John, your understanding of um, the uh, the black struggle, um, you know, when when growing and and trying to get those leadership roles, and your understanding of that dynamic um, is is greatly appreciated. I, my first question, John, is just what motivated you to write this book and tell this perspective of the illusion in sports. Cause that, that caught me it, when your title, cause it, it literally is like how much of a factor race comes into play with things and the illusion of it. Like what was the thought process behind getting started and writing this book? Well, there are a lot of things, Eric. I mean, the, 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 the long answer is my life. I mean, I grew up in New York city. Okay. Um, I, I was a good enough player that I could mm-hmm. play with the, the black kids in my neighborhood and at my mm-hmm. school. They used to call me white boy. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've lived my entire life in sports, which means that I've been around a lot of black athletes, a lot of black coaches, a lot of black administrators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can, we could sit here for the rest of the day right. and talk about examples where the only thing that kept someone from getting a job was being black. And, you know, it's a double standard in that owners in the NFL, uh, alumni in college sports, they're more than happy to have black players on their teams because that's how you win, let's be honest, Mm -hmm. um, in most cases. But they're more hesitant about having blacks in leadership positions. And this is 2023. And it was uh, 2019 when I decided to write this book. Okay, And it, it was really it, 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 it was something that had been building inside me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And as, as different incidents uh, took place, the, the the incident with Mike Shanahan and Donovan McNabb in Washington, mm-hmm. which was in 2010, mm-hmm. where uh, Shanahan, who's probably going to get voted in the Hall of Fame this year, um, benched McNabb mm-hmm. and it, it, late in the game. And his explanation after the game was that Donovan, uh, he didn't think Donovan knew the two-minute offense well enough. This guy's played in the NFL for 11 years. Right, right. Borderline Hall of Famer. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with him, but a very bright guy. 
Hmm. And then the next day, his explanation was he didn't know if Donovan was in shape to run the two-minute offense. This is nine games into the season. And then the next week, mysteriously, as always happens, an anonymous source told ESPN um, that the Shanahans, Mike and Kyle, had to cut their uh, playbook in half for Donovan. So they've now called him uh, not smart enough to learn the two-minute offense, out of shape, and dumb. Right. Which were all those stereotypes about black quarterbacks in the 60s and into the 70s and even the 80s. And it frankly, it pissed me off. I'm no fan of the of the Washington football team by any means, but so I went on a, a local TV show and I said it was racial coding. I didn't call Shanahan a racist. I said, which he may or may not be. Um, I mm. said it was racial coding to use these different excuses. Mm. And what was what really got to me was how all my colleagues in the media attacked me for saying this. In fact, Rick Riley, who's one of the most talented writers I've ever known, mm. wrote a column on ESPN.com saying, how dare I call Mike Shanahan a racist for benching Donovan McNabb? Well, that was fine, except A, I didn't call him a racist, and B, it had nothing to do with the benching. Mm-hmm. He's the head coach. He can bench anybody he wants to bench. Mm-hmm. But it had to do with his explanation. So I finally went – I'm trying to remember what the – oh, it when Colin Kaepernick happened. Okay. You guys know all about it. You that. got into that a lot. That was a really good chapter. I went to John Thompson. Yes. I'd known since I was a kid reporter at the Post. Yes. And John and I had battled when I covered Georgetown. John mm. didn't want reporters to have access to players. Right. My job was to have access to players. Right. But we'd become close mm-hmm. after he retired. And I went to see him because he's – I'm not going to say he is the smartest guy I've ever known, but he's right up there. The same here. Don't doubt. And I said, I want to do a book on, on the black experience in sports. Mm -hmm. I I want to try to understand it and to make readers understand it. And he looked at me in his unique way. And he said, John, you might as well try to explain the Holy Trinity. (laughs) coach. And then he said, and that's why you have to do the book. You're the one who has to do the book. Hey, all right. And well, so from that point on, I was determined to do the book. There were five publishers, five, mm-hmm. who turned me down. My mm. agent basically fired me because I refused to give up on the project. And I'm very proud of the fact that I went ahead and did it and, and what the book produced. And as I said in the introduction, you know this, Eric. I would never claim to say I understand the black experience because I'm white. Mm. But I talked to people who did explain the black experience to me. And I think I came to understand it a lot better as a result. And I hope the readers did too. No, it was an outstanding, outstanding perspective because John, my perspective, you, you touched, you did an article. I think I told you this before with UNBC and just so everybody knows John was the color commentator for UNBC when we came in as a staff in 2016 at UNBC. And so every home game and for two years that I was there with Ryan Odom, he every home game. So, you know, after I got over, honestly, John, the, the, the initial, it's John Feinstein, it's John Feinstein. And <laughs> my wife would get would feel that way. You know, you, you autograph my books and things of that nature, Last Dance and what is that, March to Madness and the third one I can't. So, you became Skeets and John, and and literally, that's how it is. And and I was fortunate to have this relationship with you. That 
you did an article on Fang Mitchell in 98. I did. Called March Sadness. Because, and that was my second year in college coaching. So in my career, I'm a quick synopsis, but I was on a magic carpet ride of high school, AAU, and then college basketball success of winning a, a Memorial Day AAU tournament in Columbus, Ohio, where we beat New York Riverside, Ernie Lurch, right? The great Ernie Lurch. We beat yep. that team. Yep. Then I go to St. Francis. My last year at St. Francis, we went to Alhambra. Uh, it was We were the first Baltimore Catholic League team to win the first Alhambra. First non-Damatha team to win it. Well, Baltimore, <laughs> Calvert Hall, and St. Francis are the only two ever. Mark right. Amatucci's 82 team with Mark Wilson, Pop Tubman, Dwayne Farrell, and the Edwards brothers, and then Mark Karcher and that team in 96 – they had so there's only two in the history. And then go my first year at Coppin State, 97, as a 15 seed, we were the third 15 seed in the history of the NCAA tournament to beat a two seed. Yep. Uh, beating South Carolina. And we lost the Texas by one to I go to Sweet 16. On a Sunday afternoon. Yes, sir. And so I'm on this magic carpet ride. And so that next year, we beat Missouri. We lose our best players, Turpin Mott, Reggie Welch, and the seniors. But we still have Danny Sigletary, uh, Antoine Brockington. Fred Work and that crew, we lose – well, first of all, we beat Missouri at Missouri. So Missouri scheduled us coming back from Hawaii as a guaranteed game, and we popped them, right? So we go in there, beat Missouri at Missouri. We we have a, a winning or close to a winning non-conference record going into the MIAC. All we the games the regular are season. Yes. We win the regular season. We go to the championship game. South Carolina State has a great season. I don't know if they had 20 wins or not. Coppin State coming off of, obviously, the NCAA tournament last year. We're in a championship game, and they were saying the loser of the game would go to the NIT. And right. back then, the regular season title winner didn't get that automatic bid. It, right, right. I don't know who was in New York. P.J. Carlissimo's dad, I think yep. they said, headed up the NIT he committee back then. Yep. Yep. And so we didn't. We lost a 1.2.1 1. possession game to South Carolina uh, State to go to the NCAA tournament, and we're waiting for the call. To go to the NIT, we got 20-some wins. We beat Missouri. We're coming off NCAA tournament last year. Never came. Nope. Cole never came. And when you did that article, I was like, wow. When I, I mean, look, it was a picture of Fang with a ball in the Washington Post. It's like, this guy really gets it because we're at an HBCU. And it wasn't this whole, you know, the, 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 the notoriety of the HBCU basketball. Like, Fang literally helped launch that, in my personal opinion. Ben Job and what he did. And obviously the greats of, of Big House Gaines and John McClendon. But this is in the, the advent of the March Madness. Right. And we got a letter from Jesse Jackson in 97 about the little school that could when we beat South Carolina and almost went to the Sweet 16. I, I, I say all that to say is the book, you touched on so many things. And, and Kevin, I'm going to send you the quote at with Big Coach Thompson at um, on ESPN where he's like, I'm sick of the Tubby Smith and the John Thompsons of the world. Whereas a black coach, you have to be great. You have to be twice as good to get the opportunity to fail. And that's the, the like Eric B. Enemy and Charlie Strong in football, right? And how hard and long Charlie Strong and and the 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 history of coordinators in college football and national championships. There was always the coordinator of a national championship team got a head job, got a major head job. And so at the BCA meetings in 2013, and 12 or 13, it was in Florida, might have been 11, but Charlie Strong, and they had someone 
from the search committees, because this is now the advent of the search committees in the hiring process, right? And I don't know if it was uh, which was the, the big one out of Georgia. Uh, I can't remember what search firm was there, but Charlie Stronghead went at the guy because he was in a biracial wedding, a marriage. So literally he said to the head of this search firm, you guys didn't hire me. I went through the search through you and you guys didn't hire me. Now he's currently, the, he was at that time, the head coach of Louisville. And so he had gotten a head coaching job, but he had talked about all the things that he went through in the process of interviewing, overqualified for positions, successful as a coordinator under Urban Meyer, and did not get a job. Same thing with Eric Bieniemy now as a coordinator for he two. Still hasn't gotten a job. He's huh? been a coordinator for two Super Bowl champions. That's exactly right. Still okay. hasn't gotten a job. Now he's in DC. Right. And, and God bless him because he, he he took the wrong job. But <laughs> that, that's my Ravens bias coming out. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't, you don't have to be biased to think that working for, for Washington <laughs> is a mistake. Um, although hopefully new ownership will, will change that. But it will take a while. Uh, um, but but yeah, everything you say, Eric, is true. And 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 you know the the other thing is now they have the rule where if you win your regular season and you don't go to the NCAA's, you must be invited to the NIT. But two things: if you tie for that regular season title, you don't have to be invited, right? And they don't invite you. And two, and I've seen this happen year after year: the HBCUs. They get invited because the rules say they have to get invited, and they're always eight seeds playing on the road somewhere. Yeah, yeah. in the first round. And let me uh, ask you: a few years ago, you. Norfolk State went into Alabama and yes, won. Sir. It, it and, cost Aiden Johnson his job. Yeah. So, and and uh, you know, I, I I am a defender of the mid-major conferences in general. But mm-hmm. let's go back for one second, and this isn't racial, but just in general, to your UMBC team that beat Vermont. Hmm. You don't think Vermont was worthy of an NCAA bid that year? You yeah, beat, they were. You guys beat they them at the buzzer. Jer- uh, Jarris hit that amazing shot. Right. Vermont should have been in the NCAAs that year. Forget the NIT. Right. And But that's a whole other issue. But it, what what amazed me, and I, I know 100% talking to you two guys, every black person I interviewed for Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, uh, which was about 100 guys, Every single one had been stopped at some point, at least once, usually multiple times, but at least once right. for DWB. Yeah. Driving while black. Right. Yeah. And they all had stories about it. Ned Tapscott, my good friend, who was general manager of the New York Knicks. I know him well. Uh, yeah. he, he had an apartment in Riverdale. Right. Which is a Tony neighborhood. Um, and he would drive after a game from Madison Square Garden to his apartment. He still has a hat and has a house in D.C. Mm-hmm. But... He said at least once a month he'd get pulled over in Riverdale for DWB. And he said one night while the cop was checking his license and registration and everything, he said, you know, you pulled me over just because I'm a black guy driving a nice car. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about that? And and this is after the guy had confirmed that he hadn't stolen the car. Um, And the cop looked at him and said, it's not fair. You're right. And Eric and and, uh, Eddie said, well, at least you're honest. But this goes on all the time. So let me let me, let me ask you. Sports, it goes on all the time in the world. Let me ask you a question, John, because I, I was raised under the John Thompson, John Chaney's, Fang Mitchells in that era. In right. the, and by the way, yeah. Fang Mitchell, one of the most underrated coaches ever. Yes, yes, without a doubt. The, the success he had at Coppin State. Unreal. 
Thankfully, they put his name on the floor and we got all that. Because Fang had a little bit to do with that, too, because he was a little bit upset with the people in leadership at Cop. And rightfully well, he so. had made all the money by playing all those road games. Listen, that's a story. That's, we, got my, we might have to have you back on for that segment because that's a whole other thing. But having come up and having been at the – so I went to – my first BCA meeting was 1991. And so the, 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 the formation of that organization – and the people like George Rivlin, big coach, John Thompson, John Cheney, uh, the, the, that whole. Rudy Washington. Yes, thank you. Rudy Washington, that whole organization. And shout out to Kenny Eggman Williamson and Ed Tapscott, my wife's cousin. So literally, okay. I've known Ed and I respect him until it, it's uh, all my career. But I take on, like, I said this to Coach Thompson. He was at our UMBC game. When we beat, he did the radio. That's right, in Charlotte. For CBS. He was there at the game. So when we played Kansas State, we had a nice little chat courtside before the game, and my wife got the picture of it. I was like, this was, and obviously, you know, not too long. I worked his camps in the 90s. Like, I was a product of Craig Ashford, Mike Riley, John Thompson, and the Georgetown way of doing things. And my question is, to my challenge to today's coaches, right, you look at the black head coaches, the most outspoken black coach in college sports today is Don Staley. <laughs> it's not Ed, Ed, Ed Cooley. It's not uh, Shaka Smart. It's not Lennon Hamilton. It's not. Now, when George Floyd was murdered and during the pandemic, you know, a lot of things, positives came out of that in regards to taking and, 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 making sure minorities get opportunities in, in college sports, namely in basketball. I think there was like 15 to 20 head coaches hired at the high, highest levels in the power fives in the big East. But that's my challenge. Who is in, in being the outspoken one in regards to what's the plight of, because coaches, big coach John Thompson's issue was leveling the playing field for student athletes to give them the opportunity to to be successful well, because well, like he said in his book he would have not been able to go to providence had it you know the 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 test scores you know the ncaa uh testing standards the sats and the, and the gpas that fight for prop 48 the prop 42 when he walked off right and I just I, – I, and I'm, I'm asking this question. I know I'm being long with it. Who do you think, besides Don Staley, could be that spokesperson and impactful and intelligent? Because Coach is very intelligent, was very intelligent, and his impact on his, in his, in his industry. Well, let me say, first of all, I think Shocker has been pretty outspoken. Shocker? Uh, yeah, and okay. that's one of the reasons why he had to leave Texas. True. Because the white racist boosters didn't like the fact that a black guy said that it, it, it reflected poorly on the country that Donald Trump was elected president, among mm. other things. Right. Um, now, if he'd won a national championship, they probably wouldn't have been so critical because well, I don't know how that works. And that's that's where Don Staley comes in. Mm. You mentioned a bunch of coaches. What has Don Staley done that none of those? No other doubt. No doubt. No champions. doubt. And. So I, I think what we really need, you know, John Thompson got his platform when he first went to the Final Four in mm -hmm. 1982. Mm -hmm. And he made a statement uh, in the Friday press conference because somebody said to him, how does it feel to be the first black coach to take the team to a, a Final Four? And John's response was, I was in the room. 
was I resent the hell out of that question because the implication is I'm the first black coach capable of getting to a final four. Amen. And that's not true. Big house gains. If he'd been given an opportunity, John McClendon, if he'd been given an opportunity and other, uh, might very well have gotten to final four. I mean, wake forest job opened, I don't know, eight times during John McClendon's career. He never got an interview. Wow. How do you have that guy sitting right across the street? Yes. Yes. Same with big house who was right across the street. And in the state of, in Carolina, I, I, I happened to have a, 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 a mentor who played with Al Adels at A&T in the, in the 1950s or 60s. Right. He said John McClendon was the most successful coach and the biggest coach in the state of North Carolina. Bigger than Dean Smith. Well, that. that was before Dean Smith became Dean Smith. True. Remember, Dean True. Smith didn't go to his first Final Four until 1967. Um, okay. but, but McClendon won and won and won. And right. so did Big House. Right. I, I think Big House had the all-time record for wins for a long time mm. un, until uh, uh, Dean went past him. And then, and of course, Bob Knight and Mike Krzyzewski. Right. But I, I think that we need more black coaches given platforms because I know from knowing them, as you do, Eric, mm-hmm. that there are plenty of black coaches out there who can contribute to the dialogue mm-hmm. if people will listen. See, that's the problem. People don't, and people aren't listening. To, mm-hmm. to, they're only listening, you know, the, Danny Hurley's a friend of mine, but Danny Hurley can't contribute to this dialogue after winning the national championship. Um, we need more black coaches to be given the platform because, I, you know, I I can't remember who else you mentioned among successful coaches nowadays. Ed Cooley. Uh, Ed Cooley. He's, he's certainly been... capable, and maybe at mm-hmm. Georgetown he'll get more yes. of an opportunity to, mm-hmm. to speak up if he wins, you you have to win. Gotta win. No, need to listen to you. No doubt, you need that platform, and then that's that takes me to with with the it's it's and I'm, I got so much to ask you, John, in regards to like the BCA, right? When that was formed, its initial stages, I've had coaches, old school coaches, and my mentors tell me like their they, their jobs were threatened as an assistant coach if they attended this first big meeting in Vegas. Oh, I believe that. And so now, since George Floyd's murder, it's almost like the world, and, and with your book, I, mean, I, I was so, I, I, I literally, I couldn't put it down. And literally, I, I mean, I got it on tape as well. So I mean, I'm driving and listening to it as well. And hearing you, you really saying it, like the all those issues with college sports that, you know, we'll get into the NCAA a little bit later, but I'm just thankful for someone like yourself with, and has, you have the relationship with Big John because his boldness, his intelligence, and his, his, his honestly, his, he took advantage of his size. Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> and his presence because my first BCA meeting, again, was in 1991 with David Burst was one of the guest speakers. One of the great stiffs of all time. David Burst was the head of enforcement for the NCAA. And so uh, my man Collins, uh, that was the head coach at UIC, was um, at Illinois. Illinois Chicago Circle. Yes. Um, yeah. Jim Collins. Jimmy Collins. So Jim Collins. So, you know, Coach Thompson literally 
Jim Collins was going at David Burst and things that, you know, an investigation with Bruce Pearl and things, the, the back and forth. Right. About, you the know, whole on the thing. Yes. And so Coach, Coach, Coach Thompson said, you know, you guys attacked this man and we brought this man in here. He was de- defending David Burst a little bit. Right. And he basically said, you know, the presidents of your universities and think those are the ones that are the heads of the NCAA and that are making the rules. And if you have to get the relationship with them, we brought him in here and he said, my man, he points over to Jimmy Collins and he says, if you did give a kid a hundred thousand dollars in a truck, you a damn fool. <laughs> he well, said, well oh, as you he know, just, he I, said, I have a million John Thompson stories. So he says, all we give him is hamburgers, tennis shoes, and bubble gum in Georgetown and they love right, it. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, you might remember back in 2005 after that whole disaster at Baylor with Dave Bliss. Um, the, uh, the the college coaches had a big come to Jesus meeting in Chicago, mm-hmm. and and John, you know, how do we stop this and how do we fix our image? And mm-hmm. and um, uh, John was asked to come in and speak. He was retired at the time, but he was obviously an an icon. Mm-hmm. And Richie McKay, who I'm sure you know, he's now the coach at Liberty. Yeah, no very well. good coach, very good guy, deeply religious, as yes. you know. Yes. And and Richie stands up and he says to John, Coach, isn't the best way for all of us to do better is to improve our relationships with Jesus Christ? Mm-mm. And John looks at him and he says, let me tell you something. And he uses his favorite word. Um, <laughs> M is the first half. F is the second half. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. way for all MFs to improve your image is for y'all to stop cheating. <laughs> I saw him. I wasn't in the meeting, obviously, but I heard about it from a number of guys. And the next time I saw him, I said, that's the greatest thing you ever said. <laughs> well, but, but now to be called a motherfucker by coach Thompson. Well, was I was a term of endearment. The famous story I tell in the book about uh, when I threatened, when I offered to go outside and fight him, uh, he got mad at me for yelling at his alter ego, Mary Fenlon. <laughs> and he put his arm around me and he said, let me tell you something, MF. I don't like you. I don't like you at all. But I respect your ass because you're fucking crazy. <laughs> it was a term of endearment with him. But Ski, let, me, uh, let me jump in here. Uh, we... Uh... I'm going to pose a question to both of you guys off of this book and what you guys are talking about with the empowerment of coaches and also um, coaches speaking out on on deals. Simple question. Does the ascension of Deion Sanders help or harm future black coaches trying to enter the ranks and grow in the coaching ranks kevin the answer is simple if he wins it'll help if he doesn't win it it'll hurt and i'm someone who wrote a column before Dion. i've known Dion forever i i first knew him when he was playing for the braves in 1992 mm-hmm. i got to know him well when he was with the ravens in 04 because i was writing a book about the ravens that year um and, and, and i'm a big fan I, I mean again you talk about john thompson and how smart he was Dion's like that. Dion's really sneaky smart because people see all the glitz and and, and, and glamour and, and, and they don't get how smart he is. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to win at Colorado. And I think it will be good. I wrote a column um, before he got well got the Colorado job 
saying that my alma mater, Duke, should hire him um, for a couple reasons. One, Duke's never had a black football coach, and it's well past time. Now, they had an excuse in basketball because they had the same guy for 42 years, and he was pretty good. That's right. But they had no excuse in football. And and I thought Dion would bring the kind of attention to the program. Who cares about Duke football? Nobody. Um, attention to the program, recruiting potential to the program that other coaches, white or black, couldn't bring. Now, Mike Elko has gone out and done a great job in his first year. But um, I, I think if D, excuse me, if Colorado succeeds under Dion, it will open up yeah. uh, uh, gates for for other black coaches. If he fails. Then everybody will say, ah, you see, he was just an HBCU guy. Well, it's funny you say that because the HBCU impact that he had, and John, I, you you know this, and I'm a, and, and I was disappointed, obviously, in Delaware State's lack of support of what Dion was trying to accomplish, right, at Jackson State with Rod Milstead at Delaware State. So Rod Milstead. And, and he, we became friends from the interview process. When I interviewed at Delaware State, Rod Milstead asked me a great question, a pointing question of a coach, tell us a story of a, of a relationship you've had with a player that being in college changed his life. And I told a story of a kid that Rocky, Belmar Rocky Coleman at Towson was when he was a kid, was a squeegee boy. Right. He was on a corner and, you know, selling waters and washing windows in the streets of Baltimore. And his senior year in high school, his grandmother died, who was his uh, basically his guardian because his parent mom was on drugs, that brother killed in the streets. And so when he came to Towson, John, he filled out his application and financial aid form. He signed both student and parent and guardian. And I'm looking at the application and I'm like, no, Rocky, you can't sign it. So I told that story about Rocky because right. this kid was basically at 18 years old was on his own. Entering right Gary Neal, too. Who you guys? Yeah, that, that's a that, that's a story for another part of this interview as well. But Rob Milstead played at Delaware State in the nineties, won MEAC championships as an all conference player, was drafted to the NFL from Delaware State, played multiple years, multiple teams, won a Super Bowl, was Dion's teammate with the San Francisco 49ers. and literally. You never knew that. That never was out there. And I I, I I say his name in the beginning because when I say that, I pose that question, I say, now, who is that? And people be like, I, I don't know. Yeah, right. Played in the MEAC, came back to coach's alma mater after being drafted and won an NFL Super Bowl, and you don't even know his name. And he's coaching the same time that Dion's at Jackson State. So a lot of the, the, the HBCU transition for Dion was because of who Dion is. Right, because Deion Sanders is Deion Sanders. If he went to Towson and coached football, if he went anywhere to go, he went Division II, like his high school program that he built, Prime Prep, it's because of who Deion Sanders is. Exactly. And that's the problem. You don't have – there's only one Deion Sanders. Yes. You know? Yes. And and I was with you. You know, I know how hard it is at HBCUs and at Delaware State. I was with you the night you guys – you were begging – alums for $10,000 to renovate the locker room, $10,000. An ACC coach would just t- take it out of his pocket and say, you want fifties or hundreds. Yeah, that's and, right. And that, that's, you know, money is always the difference in the world. Yes. You know that. The resource. And, and, and yes. I would love to see a place like Dell state or any of the other HBCUs specifically in the MEAC, which I've covered. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to, I hope Howard puts some money 
into their basketball and football programs after the success Kenny Blakeney's had. Yeah. They don't just pat themselves on the back and, and move on. And don't infinity. think that he's just going to be able to repeat that, rinse and, you know, rinse yeah, and repeat. Because happen. he lost his best player. He lost his point guard, he, his starting point guard from DeMath, who was there for two years, now right, transfer. Right. And, so, and that's the, the other problem for mid-majors is you have success in, 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 in today's world. The, the big schools swoop in and say, we'll get you hundred grand in NILs if you come and play for us. Well, and, and Kev – Keeping on topic, the 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 challenge I think for in Dion in this transition will be yes, be be able to recruit players, get players, and he did. I mean, he, he got the best player. It just so happened it was a Florida boy. He was going to Florida State that he had. So it's going to be challenging him to recruit. And obviously, and I've said this, John, many a times on a lot of different platforms in football. You're only and in all coaching, you're only as good as your staff, but it's glaring in football. Because I tell my son who, who's a who's a, a rising, he wants to be a coach, but he wants to coach football. Football is his sport. And you have to coach the offense and the defense. And then there's breakdowns on both sides. The quarterbacks, the wide receivers, the linemen, the running backs, the DBs, the, the defensive linemen, the, the linebackers. Special teams. All, all those position coaches, and we have mentioned special teams. Punt kickoff, punt return, kickoff, kickoff return. So, you know, they give Nick Saban all his credit for winning all these championships, but I'd be damned if his staff ain't pretty freaking good. Because well, he should get the credit because he hired the staff. Let's no doubt he's the leader. That's that's what this he's is. the leader. He's the CEO. But uh, there's one. I'm going to tell you Dion's biggest challenge because he will recruit. Mm-hmm. His biggest challenge is especially in football, which is still dominated by white people in leadership positions is that he's so honest. People don't like honesty and they especially don't like it from an outspoken black man. If he wins nine, 10 games a year, he'll be an outspoken black yeah. man. Yeah. If he wins five games a year, he'll be fired. Well, and, and that in Dion's intelligence, he knows he's been in the media. So he understands and knows how to handle it. We still have to grow in, as a, as, as a, as people, to be able to sit down at the table, regardless of race, color, or creed, and religion, and be able to just... That's what I love about sports. Like, John, I, I, I played lacrosse. So, growing oh, up in Nashville, and, and being that only being that minority, you know, I, I've, I lived it, but at the same time, I was able to have lifelong relationships with people that literally did not care about my skin color, Okay, honestly, I wasn't better than those guys. I mean, the guys I played with on this team, I mean, they went to Hopkins, Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, won national championships and things of that nature as players. Let's just say if that that day is coming in sports, and that's why I'm so – I love your book because that's spearheading, and I hope everybody that hears about this goes out and buys it and reads your book all walks of life, especially leadership in sports and in the university, in college sports, and we'll get an NIL, because the issue with a lot of these, it, the problem, it starts with the leadership and the lack thereof because... I mean, look at Mark Emmert. I mean, he was the emptiest suit I ever met. No, an idiot. And, and an idiot. I, I, you know, everybody is, is all excited about this new guy, Charlie, the former governor of, of Massachusetts. Yeah. You know, one thing you mentioned what John said in 1991, it's the presidents who control the NCAA. Right. It's, it's not Mark Emmert or Charlie. Right. What? 
You're right. Yeah, I'm forgetting right. his last name. But anyway, so let's move on to the finish because I have to go write a book today. That's a good day when you're writing a book. I do have one uh, very strong question um, for both of you. And that question is, what did they say? It's Eric Skeeter's favorite game uh, where he loses miserably each week. Uh, but what happens is there's three quotes that'll be played on the screen. And both of you will be guessing uh, what was that word or phrase that was said in there. And if you are correct, you get no prize, but you do get the pride of winning. What <laughs> am I like? No prize. This prize. <laughs> we'll, start off, we'll start off with a very famous coach that uh, both of you may know. Uh, we'll go back to the 1992 West Regional before the practices began uh, for that tournament. It's uh, Coach Bob Knight. He had a quote where he was uh, kind of upset about the how the times of the games were lining up beforehand. Bobby Knight. Here's that quote from Bobby Knight. I think that, that we should probably start at, uh, oh, maybe 7 in the morning and alternate games because I think that way we could interest across the country in basketball. Any I'm guess? Gonna, I'm going to let you answer that. I'll play it again if need be. You need me to hit it one more time? Sure, why not? All right, let's play it one more time. Bobby Knight before the 1992 West Regional. What did he say? I think that, that we should probably start at, uh, oh, maybe 7 in the morning and alternate games because I think that way we could interest across the country in basketball. Eric, don't be cold. You you got a guest here. You guess first. Don't just be trying to put John out here. To, we could, uh, and the, uh, John was probably at that press conference. <laughs> no, I wasn't actually in 1992. They they did make the Final Four that year, and they lost to Duke, but I was not at that regional. I got you. It, it I was doing what was called the Christian Leitner Regional that year. Yeah, that was a great. That was a good. What did Bobby Knight say? There's a lot of avoiding of the question here. What did Bobby Knight say? We're going to introduce. Introduce, I don't know, man to man office. I don't know what he could have Any guess there, John? Or do you want me to play it one more time? No, no. He's referencing women. And Mm. I don't know if he used a profanity or not. Mm. But I think, given the context, he would not use the C word, but he would use the P word. Mm. Ooh. Let's see what Bobby Knight said. Yeah, let's see what he said, Kevin. I think that that we should probably start at. Oh, maybe seven in the morning and alternate games because I think that way we could interest housewives across the country in basketball. Housewives. We didn't go to the profanity. There you go. You know Bobby Knight better than anybody. I'll give him a point there. The words. Yeah, you got to. See, now I don't get to, John, just so you know, you're the guest, Mm -hmm. but I said shots and it was three pointers and Kev didn't give me the points. So I just want you to know. The record, let the record show. Let the record show. <laughs> at least I knew it was women. Let's go to 1983, the NCAA championship game. Jim Valvano, Lorenzo Charles knocks down a game winner, and they knock off the Houston Cougars. Kim Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. Uh, Jim Valvano with a very excited post-game presser. What did he say? And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and it's true. I mean, for like a split second, we just stared at each other. I said, I mean, we won the national championship. I mean, just like that. Bang. It was over. What did Jim Valvano say there? Holy shit. (laughs) 
let's hit it one more time. Oh, oh, are, are we com- confident? What'd you say there, John? I, I was going to say fuck. <laughs> let's play it one more time. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and it's true. I mean, for like a split second, we just stared at each other. I said, I mean, we, we won the national championship. I mean, just like that, bang, it was over. Like that, bang, it was over. Let's see what Jim Valvano had to say. He looked at me, and I looked at him, and it's true. I mean, for like a split second, we just stared at each other. I said, it's over. I mean, we won the national championship. I mean, just like that, bang, it was over. It's over. It's over. Uh, oh, I thought there was a word in between. No. Oh, no. I no. did. That's why I, 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 we, we both thought there was a word in between, I think. No, now we're making it. remember name one that tune? Name not... that tune? This is like name that tune. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if Kevin old enough to know name that tune. Yeah. The great John Feinstein is one for one. No, no one, one for two. two. One for Derek Skeeter is <laughs> oh for two and has officially go. already lost the game. Let's go to our third and final quote. It's uh, the great Coach K. Uh, I guess, John, you may know this person very well. It's uh, his uh, speech to the crowd after his final home game. After his final home game. Let's see what Coach K had to say. It's hard for me to believe this is over. And um, um so I'm just going to say the is over. All right. Two words there. Two words there. What did he say? Let's hit it one more time. It's hard for me to believe this is over. And um, um, so I'm just going to say the is over. All right. Mm-hmm. The hard part. Oh, the hard part. Can John, can he go? Two for three and win the first his first ever attempt at what did they say? I'm gonna go with holy shit. <laughs> In front of a live crowd, he said this. Finally, well, you heard the reaction. That's true. <laughs> How about what, that? What did Coach K say? It's hard for me to believe this is over, and um, um, so I'm just gonna say the regular season's over. All right. <laughs> Ah, yeah, uh, regular season. I, I forgot. That's not the Mike Krzyzewski I know and love. <laughs> Much hey. to my glee, I've got two losers of what did they say. Yep. Uh, but a uh, phenomenal episode nonetheless. Faraday, the remarkably funny and tragic journey of golf's David Faraday is out now. Uh, John, thoughts on the book? You said it's been getting quite a bit of love for you. It has, and um, I credit David. Uh, his story is unique. Uh, I don't know how I know Eric follows golf, but um, I don't know about you, Kevin, but uh, he grew up during the troubles in Northern Ireland. He's been an alcoholic all his life. He was a drug addict in the nineties. He lost a child uh, Mm. to a drug overdose. He's, he's lived a tragic life, but he's also lived an extraordinary life because he became such a big star on golf telecast. He was a very good player. He beat Payne Stewart in the Ryder cup in 1991. That's how good he was. Mm. Um, And uh, we've been friends for 30 years. And he and I sat down and we talked through his life in great detail. He did not hold back anything. There was no point where he said, I don't want to talk about that, even though there were some very painful things, obviously, that we did talk about. And uh, as you said, Kevin, the books, it's funny because my last two books, I've been writing books now since 1986. My last two books, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee and Faraday, May have gotten my, the best reviews ever, so mm-hmm. I guess I got to keep working. Come Fine on. wine, Co- down you like that. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. 
Well, and and so I, I want to have you back because we didn't get to touch on NIL and the transfer portal. And I got to get, you know, what your take is because NIL and I, and I, and I have, and I, and I want to leave us with this, this quote from David Burke. I mean, not David Burke from <laughs> Walter Byers, uh, the Kansas city sports commission's annual gala Byers, he, he said this at the state. And then I want to leave this for our listeners. Walter Byers says each generation of young persons come along and they ask coach, give me a chance. I can do it. And it's a disservice to these young people that the management of intercollegiate athletics stays in place committed to an outmoded code of amateurism. And I attribute that, quite frankly, to the neo-plantation mentality that exists on the campuses of our country and in the conference offices and in the NCAA. The coach owns the athlete's feet, the college owns the athlete's body, and the athlete's mind is supposed to comprehend a rule book that I challenge David Burst, who's sitting down in this audience, to explain in rational terms to you inside of eight hours. So that's so long after Walter Byers retired. Yes. Because yes. remember it was Walter Byers who invented the phrase student athlete. Thank which, you, John. Which was to cover up the fact that the top players in college in football and basketball were not amateurs. Right. He wanted to perpetrate the myth that they were amateurs. Right. And in fact, uh, I said this to Mark Emmert one time, not only is student athletes an incredibly hypocritical term, but it's redundant by rule. You can't be a college athlete unless you're a registered student. <laughs> and, and so it's like calling someone a, a, a person man or a person woman. It's completely redundant. And just to take it one step far, farther, um, Cal Poly Pomona, years ago was put on probation and forced to forfeit two football games because the way they registered their students was they allowed them to go to classes, try out the classes and then register. Hmm. So because they had football players who technically weren't registered, hmm. they had to forfeit two football games. That's the NCAA. Well, and that's where that, that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother show. That's yep, a whole nother show. Uh, as we get close to the football season, if you're uh, open to a job, we'd love to have you back on and, and talk some transfer portal, some NIL love stuff that is near and dear to Eric Skeeter's heart. Yeah, for sure. We'd love to chop it up. Uh, John Feinstein, esteemed author, journalist, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Good to talk to both of you guys. Thank All you, right, John. All right, bro. Top assistant, I'm Kevin Wilson. That's Eric Skeeters. That's John Feinstein here on the show. We'll uh, see you guys next time on Top Assistant. My man.